You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. In the previous episode, Dr John Martin and I spoke about trees as habitat for organisms, especially animals. John manages the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney project, Hollows as Homes, which is transitioning to the Wildlife Assist project. Before our scheduled interview, we had a nice little chat about the future of Aussie ecology. I thought it was a bit selfish for me to keep this chat to myself, so I'm sharing it with you guys as well. I hope you like it. So some of the research I, I do is on flying fox populations and mobility and particularly the threat of extreme heat events. So, all right, so one of the threats to them is, is heat stress. And so with climate change, with global warming, we're, we're seeing that we're going to have more extreme weather events. And heat stress, uh, sorry, extreme heat days uh, is, is uh, one of those categories. So, yes, more cyclones, more floods, but we're also going to have more heat waves. And so flying foxes are the canary in the coal mine in this example because we've seen, particularly over the last couple of decades, more frequent events when we've had these 43-plus degree days that we've had hundreds to thousands of individuals die at different flying fox colonies. And, and how the animals mitigate this threat from the temperature is they actually stop roosting in the canopy of the tree and they move down to the ground where it's cooler and they move into the shadier patches. And so one of the, the, the suggestions to cool the animals down is actually to spray the colonies with water. And, and I can tell you that is hugely effective when you can cool down an individual animal because they, they drink the water off themselves and it cools them down physically. The, the flip side, though, is these individuals uh, cool themselves down naturally through evapotranspiration and they actually lick their forearms and they beat their wings so that there's a, they're generating a cool breeze that evaporates that saliva and cools down their body because they don't sweat like we do. So they need that um, evaporative cooling. And if we spray the site with water, what we naturally do is increase the humidity and that decreases their capability to have evaporative cooling. And, and of course, that doesn't mean that method won't work in all situations, but it does mean that we, we need to understand it better. And so I'm doing some research on this with colleagues, uh, so Justin Welberg and Western Sydney University. And so we're doing some experimental uh, spraying and monitoring using thermal imaging cameras and weather stations and drones to actually look at how that application of water cools the microclimate and alters the humidity. And we want to see, you know, if there's a, a best way to do this. And, and I'll, I'll just also throw the, the caveat out there. In Eastern Australia alone, we know of over 800 flying fox colonies and you can have big heat waves that can be affecting tens of colonies on the same day. And, you know, we don't have the infrastructure in place to have those sprinkling systems everywhere. They may not be appropriate in all situations. They may actually cause more mortalities because they might be increasing humidity. And of course, a lot of the time people will talk about, say, getting something like the Rural Fire Service to come and spray the colony with the water tanker. The catch there, of course, is when it's a 43 plus degree day, quite often there are bushfires. <laughs> or threats of bushfires. So it's not very practical to be sending fire trucks to flying fox colonies, which are often in bushy gullies. You know, you can't necessarily drive to them. So 
the idea has great merit because it's, it's great to be trying to help these individuals. The application is yet to be shown to be the right application to solve this problem. And just from a logistics perspective, it has somewhat limited application because bush gullies aren't known for having uh, water taps and sprinkler systems readily installed in them. So there there are some obvious challenges there. But it it is an interesting aspect to, again, much like the the wildlife assist program and and learning about tree hollows, it's it's adding the scientific foundation to, to an ecological solution for a problem that we're facing. So I don't know how much you're across some of Doug Benson's work. So he, it's very Sydney-focused, a lot of his stuff. But, you know, he's a big voice in the discussion about provenance and, and that sort of conversation has well moved on. But that was a conversation he was starting in the 80s and 90s about if we're going to be restoring habitats, we should be restoring them with uh, plants that actually come from that geographic area and have those genes, not just, you know, oh, Lamandra longifolia from anywhere in the freaking country will be fine. Just put that in that natural bushland area and not think about it, you know. Right. Anyway, so those are, those are old conversations. But, you know, when you've got pioneering people like that who've been there, and I mean, he's retired now, but had been there for like 40 years and you're still like, well, we still haven't even got those organizations thinking in what ideally would be a, a holistic way mm. and and resourcing in particular is a, is a key issue you know the idea that the I, I used to always say this about centennial park was if the grass was mown the toilets were clean and the bins were empty you didn't have a problem and so that meant no one gave it a toss that there was a critically endangered eastern suburbs banksia scrub threatened species community there, that wasn't a priority. <laughs> you know, there's, there's threatened bats, there's threatened birds. They're not a priority. People just want to make sure that they can kick a soccer ball around and have a, have yeah. a um, picnic. I don't know if it's just that I'm becoming more interested in it or not, but I do notice like more people who are interested in those sorts of things. And I love that point that you made about, yeah, native plants versus geographically native plants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it's it's most obvious when we talk about things that are weeds, like Acacia saligna, which is a coastal wattle that grows in Western Australia but was planted over here as for dune stabilisation and things like this, a bit like the story of Bitu Bush. And so it looks great. A lot of people wouldn't think it's not a native of Eastern Australia, but it spreads as a weed because it's outside its natural distribution. And so it's, it's sort of freed from those uh, different diseases and insects that would have naturally eaten it and controlled it in a way. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. But like I say, there's some really interesting, like that conversation about provenance has actually moved quite a, a long way in the last decade or two. And so there's some really interesting stuff that Maurizio Rosetto is doing at the Botanic Garden Sydney about having climate models and showing that the genes of this species across its distribution, you know, you say, okay, that this plant grows in Grafton and Sydney and down in Bigger. Well, in 50 years' time under climate models, the plants that currently grow in Grafton are going to be climactically suitable for Bigger because Bigger is going to have the, the climate of Grafton in 50 years' time. So should we actually move those plants that sort of 800 kilometres south using you know human technology to transfer them rather than letting the natural process of these plants to move? And as you can imagine, with such a fragmented landscape 
it's very hard for the genes of those plants to move at that landscape scale so that the, the genes that are adapted to the hotter, drier conditions are going to occur in the more southern latitudes. Hmm. Well, because trees move very slowly and plants move very slowly. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and they can't move at all when there's barriers. So, you know, hmm. the, the city of Sydney, <laughs> 5 million people, is a massive barrier for the genetics of plants to move. And so, you know, one of the species I mentioned with the flying foxes is so we're talking about that with respect to heat stress but one of the things i I often talk with the community about and and even in government industry you know it's it's things that people don't it's relatively new information is how mobile they are and so the great example i like to give is kringai chase national park to the north of sydney and royal national park to the south of sydney and they're geographically separated by about 60 kilometers but a flying fox can fly between those two patches in a night and be foraging on Angophora costata or, you know, Corumbia maculata. And so it is now pollinating and cross-pollinating at that landscape scale. And very few other species do that. There's a couple of birds that will do it at that 60K scale, but then you go, let's take this up a notch. And the flying foxes, we actually have data shown that they can fly up to 300 kilometres in a night. And we just, none of the birds do that that are pollinators and none of the insects uh, that are pollinators are doing that either. So flying foxes are unique in our modern landscape where they are actually the, the few, there's the four native flying fox species on mainland Australia that can actually move at those scales to be pollinating at a landscape scale of hundreds of kilometres in a night and that can be even thousands of like a thousand kilometers in a week so yeah there's in the modern world you know that's uh that's quite a valuable resource yeah so i guess that's going to have a huge effect on how quickly certain plants are going to be able to adapt and move sort of those long distances in short periods of time as opposed to maybe some other plants that aren't pollinated by flying foxes maybe aren't able to do that yeah absolutely true yeah so and it's a really good point the you know was it over 10,000 plant species in Australia? Is it 10,000 or 30,000? I can't remember. Oh, I'm not sure. Anyway, but, you know, we only talk about a few hundred pollinated by flying foxes. So most of these plants are living, uh, you know, are only going to be moving their genes at a very small scale with things like the insects and the birds. So, yeah, it's quite interesting to think about how species respond particularly under the, the rapid changes that we're observing with respect to temperature and, and then, you know, big droughts and big fires and big floods, <laughs> so extreme heat like uh, heat waves. So these things, there's a lot that we don't understand when it comes to localised consequences of some of these events. And so, yeah, it's a lot of interesting research to be done. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you speak on some of the different conditions in Australia? Like we think Australia is a big country, but it is one country and it might be easy to underestimate just how vast the country is and how different the conditions are between different states and even within a single state. Yeah, well, Western Australia is ginormous and you know, it, it's really quite a, a dry state, but down in the southwest, you know, it's a super diverse, one of the global biodiversity hotspots. And that's for the heathlands that they've got down there, huge diversity of, of flowering plants and then really specialised species that have evolved to live in those habitats as well, so from insects to reptiles to mammals. And then, of course, you've got desert environments in, in Western Australia, 
and up north you've got tropical environments, which you know you have that seasonal environment. The thing, though, of course, is one of the one of the things we often overlook when we talk about the size of Australia and the and the diversity of habitats is the, is the marine environment and also the freshwater environments. But it's just to note that, of course, there's huge reef systems like the Great Barrier Reef on the west, on the west coast with things like Ningaloo and you know, it's not as big as the Great Barrier Reef, but it's, it's in and of itself is, is spectacular and a unique habitat. But, you, you know, to that point of across the country and across the different states, um, Victoria, a lot of people wouldn't think about it, but they've got the, the alpine areas there with the snowy mountains, but they've also got parts of the, a desert where you're joining on to, or, you know, very arid at the very, at, you know, if not desert, where you're joining on to South Australia and, and, you know, parts that link into the Murray there. So Victoria is one of the smaller states, but it has a huge diversity of habitats and in itself it has a huge diversity of species. So managing these things is complex and yeah, I guess it's tough because different different states have different ways of approaching uh, different bioregions for, for how they manage them. But ultimately, from an environmental perspective, you'd have to say that we probably need a bit of a, a revolution in this space where there's a lot of talk about individual species and, you know, that's interesting. So New South Wales has the Saving Our Species program and, and they're really focusing on, mm. on threatened species. Back in, in 2009, the Commonwealth Government announced that they weren't going to focus on single species, they're going to focus on ecosystems. So, you, you know, that's only 11 or 12 years ago now and that's a very different uh, approach to what the current New South Wales approach is. So I can't say which one's right and which one's wrong, but I think the reality is we need both. We need to be focusing on individual species where they need it and, and in particular that's then the habitats that are fundamental for those species and looking at what are the threatening processes and how we can can mitigate them and then also looking at, at all the various scales so particularly when it comes to ecosystems you know we we sort of miss the picture there a lot particularly because of the scale of some of these things so it's like the murray darling basin it's it's huge and the idea of having a, a detailed understanding of all the water and how it flows through and how it recharges, how it actually promotes life from within the freshwater environment through to those floodplains and then mass breeding bird events. But, of course, all those things are reliant on what's happening with plants growing and the different species that are, are there which are going to be eaten. So. It's the tiny things that, that sort of build the pyramid, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, when it rains in, south, in, in sort of that southwest um, Queensland and then a flood flows through and, and, or something like that, or, you know, you get the rain up. It, um, it was pretty amazing a couple of years ago with the cyclone that sort of hit Townsville and, and then went on into the inland of, of Queensland. And then, of course, that flows through into Lake Eyre down in South Australia. You know, those things, they, they, they boggle the mind. We're very lucky with satellites and planes and things like this that we can appreciate the scale of some of these uh, environmental events. But obviously only a few decades ago that would have been very challenging to appreciate that it, it rained three or 4,000 kilometres away and that's what's caused the flood in a certain area. So, yeah, there's, there's still a lot to learn about those things. And, and one of the, the, the really interesting ones is 
how different species respond to these boom and bust cycles of resources in the landscape. And, you know, so one of the, the ones often talked about is things like the pelican turning up a lake air and it's not, you know, we don't intimately know how that works. Uh, flying foxes are a species I've got some more experience with, but still we, we don't really understand how one to 200,000 animals can turn up in a geographic area where there's a, a mass flowering event. And, you know, there's some speculation, but it, it, we really don't understand that for all species how they navigate and how they understand the cycle of food resources, especially at huge landscape scales of hundreds to thousands of kilometres. Absolutely. You mentioned a word there that I just wanted to touch on again. You said bioregion. Can you explain what that term means? Yeah. So there's different plants and animals uh, and therefore associated ecosystems, and they might occur in a specific area, which we can term as a bioregion. So a desert environment can be a bioregion, and it's going to have different plants and animals to temperate forest, which is a different type of bioregion. Equally, you know, we can think about uh, marine environments. And so in the coastal marine environments or a type of bioregion, they're going to have different species compared to deeper water marine environment, similar with, with freshwater. So often the freshwater is integrated into these bioregions. But if you look at the freshwater environments, there's going to be different uh, aspects to the ecosystem there. And, and if you want to focus on a river itself or a floodplain itself, you know, they in, in themselves can actually form what could be a small bioregion generally. That's very interesting. And I guess those bioregions are connected, as you've been saying, you know, through certain events and also just it gradually changes sometimes and sometimes there's a harsh change from one to another. Well, in particular when, you know, extreme events occur like floods and droughts and fires, but they're more of a, a pulse change. But, yeah, the, the bioregions can be quite gradual and so it can be hard to, to see that, that transition. But a, a really good example that a lot of people who have gone for a bushwalk will notice is you know, if you're walking up on a, a plateau and you might have really tall trees and um, some ferns underneath or some grasses underneath and then you go down into the gullies uh, as you go down a hill and it becomes a bit uh, denser vegetation, more shrubs. The term we often use is more mesic and you actually get these wet gullies and, and you know, even in Sydney region and, and you know, south, across southeast Australia, you can get rainforest patches. And, of course, we think of rainforest as being up in tropical areas and North Queensland, these sorts of things. But you, you find these wet gullies and sometimes they've got remnant species from, you know, long times ago when the larger areas uh, under different climactic conditions were rainforest. So. Yeah, another really simple example there. Again, if you if you're bushwalking or even just if you go to the beach, you've you've probably noticed that there's uh, heathland generally where you've got shallow soils or at the backs of beaches. There's often heathland, and and so rocky areas on a on a hillside will, will in the Sydney region in particular we we see a lot of heathland. And then as you move into areas where there's better soil, so further back from the beach, there's less salt in that landscape in the soil profile or up on on the hills when you sort of move down the hillscape a little bit, you get more trees. And so those sorts of transitions are are a small scale that we'll all be able to relate to and have experienced where you're just moving through a landscape and you see that different species live in a certain area. And that's due to the things like whether it's exposure to heat and salt, close to the beach or it might be winds as well 
uh, and then you move into an area and they're a bit more protected. Maybe there's deeper soils, a little bit more water in the environment, which can support larger trees. And, of course, with those different plants, which form sort of the basis, you've got a range of different animals that will be living there as well. So these things can be really small and, you know, might not be that obvious, but that's one of the challenges because sometimes there can be specific species that only live in very specific areas and a really extreme example of that is something like the corroboree frogs up in the snowy mountains and and they live in these little creek lines and um you know it's they're they're quite fragile and quite distinct in the landscape but there's if they get destroyed then you're likely to lose those species and that was a a very significant issue with the bushfires a year ago in that area Mm. with the um, northern Corroboree frog. So there's two subspecies of the corroboree frog, the northern and the southern. Uh, thanks, John. That's a whole other episode that we've done there before the scheduled episode. <laughs> I was going to jump in before I go. Are we, um, are we going to talk about tree <laughs> Should we stop talking about this? Sorry, I just went with you. Yeah. If you like this sort of content, subscribe and follow for heaps more just like it. We also balance this ecological kind of stuff with horticultural and landscape gardening industry stuff because we think that all of these things belong together. Tell your friends, family, boss, work colleagues and anybody else that you know who's passionate about plants. But to be honest, the fact that you've even listened this far into the episode actually means the world to Ben and I. So thank you so much for listening.